Hello and welcome to Rocket Talk. I am Justin Landon and we're doing something tonight that I haven't done before, I don't think. Uh, we're going to spend a, an entire show talking about a single book and how much we love it. And that book is Ooh. Uprooted by Naomi Novik. And I am joined by the ooing voice of Amal El-Motar. Amal is a Canadian author and blogger. She's won several awards for her poetry and was nominated for the Nebula Award in 2011 for her short story, The Green Book. Her nonfiction work can be found at Tor.com, NPR, and Lightspeed Magazine. Welcome, Amal. Thank you very much. How is your column at Lightspeed going? When last you were on the show, your column had not come out yet, I don't think, but I think it has come out now. Yes, yes, uh, it has come out. And um, I've since written another one because that's the way things work with uh, with writing columns three months in advance uh, and stuff like that. So uh, I think it's okay. I haven't actually heard a whole lot of feedback on it. And I'm not sure if that's good or not, but I, I'm just going to trust that, you know, it's out there, people are reading it, people are hopefully enjoying it. But the stuff that I covered most recently uh, is coming out in the June issue, so in a couple, gosh, less than a couple of weeks now, uh, and it's in the Queers Destroy Science Fiction issue. And uh, I'm looking at Nicole Corner Stace's Archivist Wasp, and Elizabeth Bear's Karen Memory, and uh, Hal Duncan's Scruffians Collection. Uh, it's kind of got a loose theme of queer communities and stuff like that. How did you How did you find Karen Memory? I really enjoyed it. Uh, I uh, it, it's I kind of resisted in the review using the word rollicking because I realized every single person who talks about that book uses the word rollicking. Uh, but I I see why. It's the first word you reach for, but I really enjoyed it. Um, I like I loved the voice. Um, I listened actually to your interview with Bear, uh, and uh, and and so I'd, I'd actually heard the interview before reading the book, so it was a little bit informed by that. So I really really liked it. Yeah, I thought it was a cool. I mean, I love it when somebody like Elizabeth Bear sort of takes on what are frankly like super tired tropes and totally does them in a way that is not tired. At all. Yes. This was actually the first book of theirs I'd read. Uh, I haven't read any of her stuff before. Well, no, that's not true. I've read her short fiction, uh, but uh, I'd not read a novel of hers before. So I'll be really curious to see how, like, uh, the, you know, if I go back. At this point, I can't actually fathom reading books that haven't come out in the last few years just because, like, all of my reading time is taken up with new books, which is a terrible problem to have, really. Um, not really. I love it very much. Um, but uh, I, I'm curious to see like how Karen Memory will compare to something like the Eternal Sky trilogy and stuff like that. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, it's really cool. One of the things I love about Bear's writing is it's super adaptable. Like she writes in all these different styles, and I don't know. Like I don't know. I think it's like I think it's a compliment to tell an author. Like I can never tell that it's it's you. You know, like because you can do yeah. some cool things. I mean, I guess some authors always want to be like I want to be super recognizable when I write, but she uh, can do so many different cool things and. She's super prolific, and that actually is an interesting segue into the book that we're talking about tonight, which is <laughs> Uprooted by Naomi Novik. And so Novik's previous work is Holionic Dragons, and it's like battles <laughs> and and adventure I think, in some ways, than this book. And Uprooted is also like a fairy tale, and I don't know if it's being marketed young adult, but it's like sort of patently agreeable for young adults. I don't know. Are, are young adult books allowed to have unbelievably steamy sex scenes? 
Like, I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know the answer to this question because young adult as a category really confuses me. But uh, Yeah, probably not middle uh, grade certain... for steamy sex. But, but I think young adult <laughs> can have sex, right? I think so. I mean, certainly young adults do. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the way the marketing works. But anyways, yes, definitely. I, I only say this because, my goodness, <laughs> jumping slightly ahead, I, I was very, very moved by that one scene in particular. But anyway, that's jumping ahead. Yeah, real quick, like FYI, I apologize. This book came out Tuesday, and <laughs> this podcast is going to get a little spoilery. Uh, I have no doubt. Uh, we will try to preface it anytime we get spoilery. But the purpose of this podcast, at, at its impetus, is to convince everybody listening to it to read the book, but also yes. hopefully to be a podcast that after you read the book, you can come back and listen to and enjoy uh, hearing us talk about it. So. Yes, there is a scene in the book, uh, and I, I presume you're talking about the one that happens in the tower uh, when somebody comes to visit. Is that the one? Yes, that's yeah. the one. Yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, anyway, I mean, I don't want to fixate on this because it, it really is, in some ways, the least of the things I was uh, I was interested in, in terms of the millions of amazing things this book was doing. But I really, I mean... Good sex scenes are a rarity in books. They just, they're so rare. They're, it's rare that they're not kind of just sort of elegantly prefaced and then kind of elided or, um, or that they're just slightly awkward or, you know, but this was just beautiful. It was beautifully done and it was, it was really hot. <laughs> it was really great. And I just appreciated that so much in among all the other things about it that I really liked. Yeah, no, and it's interesting. We talked about Elizabeth Bear earlier, but when I read the Eternal Sky, uh, the first book in the Eternal Sky trilogy, um, which the title of escapes me at the moment, uh, Range of Ghosts, it, I wrote an article at that point that talked about sex and fantasy because I thought Elizabeth Bear wrote such a tremendous sex scene in that book, mm -hmm. um, which of course she compares somebody's flanks to a horse, which is somewhat tropey and stereotypical, but like, <laughs> she did it really well. <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah the, so never, never the first time i think the, oh, sorry the only thing i can think of when i think of horace and flank is that scene in a knight's tale where uh like the princess is or whatever is just going on about like he called me his horse's flank and it's just this horrible faux pas but yeah a true classic of of medieval fiction i think a knight's tale absolutely yes. absolutely uh, Heath Ledger's <laughs> finest moments, I think. Rest in peace. Uh, oh, so up, yeah. so uprooted. I think if anybody hasn't quite gathered yet, Amal and I both loved this book. And I'll start by just kind of telling you why I loved it so much, and then you can tell me maybe why you loved it so much, and we'll see if we argue yes. about anything. But like, okay. So first of all, I will say to to begin the whole conversation, the first half of this book is maybe perfect. Um, oh. Like, I think the first half of the book is as perfect of a book as I've ever read. The second half, not as perfect. There are things that I would nitpick in it. The ending is is satisfying, but there's a part toward the end where I'm like, oh, really? But the first half of the mm. book has just absolutely swept me away. And I think it has something to do with, like, the first, I mean, the first paragraph in particular is, like, it's just awesome. It, the first paragraph, it, it's one of the best first paragraphs I've, I've ever read in a book ever. And I think it's built around this notion that like you expect all of these stereotypical horrible things to happen when this wizard 
abducts a girl from a village to capture her for 10 years in his tower. And it's just the two of them. And she's serving his every need. And it's not, and it's not in the way that you think. And like that classic setup that, that she undermines right away. It just, it, it makes me, you makes you look at the book in a whole new way and you can't wait to find out how it's going to all turn out. Like I just, it just captured me from the first paragraph. Mm -hmm. So the thing about this book that I, so to preface this, um, Naomi Novik has always been on my radar as, uh, as someone who a lot of people whose opinions I super trust and respect, uh, adore. Um, and it's always been for Temeraire books, but, um, I, I sort of missed the moment when I could have been reading them at the same time as all my friends. And so they just kind of slipped away and I knew that she was very well respected and so on. But so when I knew Uprooted was coming out, I was curious to read it, but it was really, really like pressed upon me by my NPR editor going, you have to read this book. It's so, so, so great. So. I just, you're absolutely right, totally agreed about the first paragraph and how tremendous it is. I love the fact that it starts with talking about, like, a dragon who takes maidens away, right? Except the dragon's a dude, and he's a wizard. And I, like, right before reading this book, uh, not immediately before, but, like, in the last few months, uh, I read Serafina and Shadowscale uh, for the first time. So I was, like, dragons a little bit on the brain and dragons who are human even a little bit more on the brain. So this kind of settled into a spot that I think had been opened up for it by my having just read another incredibly compelling first-person narrative that was centered around dragons in some way. But then it went in a totally, totally different direction. And talking of, like, the things that she undermines, the main thing about this book that just I, I cannot... I, I just can hardly put into words is that what she's doing is actually not very complicated and not very new in as much as like in, in a tropey way at any rate uh, that she's like the main concerns of the book are things that uh, reminded me of a lot of things that I'd read before, but she's doing it so unbelievably inarticulably well like I, I was just so thoroughly dragged into this book, just so thoroughly inhabiting it. I literally, as I was reading it, kept having to kind of do this thing that I do when I'm really into a book, which is to just put it down and walk around the room really kind of like angrily. <laughs> it's just like literally moved me to get up and walk away from it because it's so good. Um, and I just like would, would vocalize about it all the time. And so yeah, um, I think I disagree with you about a first and a second half. I, I really thought of the book in thirds. I think uh, I saw Tempest uh, Bradford saying on Twitter that she was amazed at how much plot got crammed into this book. Uh, but she didn't say, I don't think she said crammed. I think she said fit maybe. But the point is like for a lot of other writers, this might've been a trilogy, but instead it's really, it's this really compact, really dexterous plot that just is, is constantly moving at the same time that it's it's thoroughly inhabiting every place that it's in. Like, I was reading it on Kindle. So I was, it's this really weird sort of cognitive dissonance thing for me when I see that, like, I've completed a certain percentage of a book. Uh, but it's the new thing I'm getting used to. So 
whenever a plot thing was happening, I would look at the percentage of the book that I was at and go, hmm, so I guess this is going to move from this space to a different space. And, and I can sort of, it was really interesting to kind of follow that progression in a, in a percentage-based way. So I, I do end up thinking of it in, in thirds, uh, like the, the bit that she spends um, near Dvernik, the, the bit that she spends at court, the bit that she spends having come back to Dvernik um, as kind of three big areas um and then all like that that's kind of broken up in my head in in smaller um adventures yeah i totally agree with the fact that you say that it's three parts i think you're right uh that it is really a trilogy and it's sort of as i was reading it i actually was expect i didn't know it was a standalone when i started reading it and a sort of like in fantasy, we've come to sort of expect that nothing is standalone, you silly reader. I know, so, I know. And I, I've been burned by that so many times too, where I think something's a standalone and then no, I get to the end and I'm like catapulting off the cliff that I'm supposed to hang off of, but I don't because I'm just angry. But anyway, go on. And so in this book, the setup, right, is that you've got um, these villages that are, are oriented in this lord's land and this lord is a wizard. Mm-hmm. And adjacent to this land, where this lord reigns, is this wood. And this wood, essentially, you know, quote-unquote, scare-quote, magical forest. And uh, the magical forest uh, kills people occasionally when they get too close to magical forest. And, you know, our protagonist is going to uh, live in this wizard's castle, et cetera, et cetera. And so... The, but the wood is this great mysterious thing for, I would say, probably 85% of the book, you yeah. really have no idea what the wood is. And so right. in my head, right, like I'm thinking to myself like, man, this book is almost over and I don't know what the hell this wood is. I don't understand the threat. I mean, I know it's real and I and I understand it in the concept of the story, but I don't – we don't know what it is. Our characters don't know what it is. <laughs> and so – I kept thinking to myself, there's no way this can be a standalone book. There's like, hmm. when is she going to answer the goddamn question <laughs> what, of, <laughs> of who the bad guy is, of who the, of who the villain is, or not the villain, but the, um, this, this antagonist. This, yeah. This dread, yeah. sort of the pallor that's hanging over the entire story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I talk about the ending feeling a little off sometimes, I think it's that, that push to get that information out about what's really going on that comes at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. But, the the ability for her to maintain that mystery of what the wood is is i think really the heart of what makes the book such a page turner um i mean i think yeah. that she's doing lots of great things with character she's done lots of great things with the relationships but i think what kept me and you talked about like having to literally force yourself to get up and walk <laughs> around the room is yeah. like that that page turning quality is like that inexorable question that must be answered which yeah. i think all great page turners do is like, what is the wood? What's it doing? What's its end game? Um, and I had to know the that's answer really, to that question. That is so interesting, because I don't think that was actually the driving force of it for me. Um, I think the driving force of it for me was actually, uh, this should come as like no surprise to anyone who's known me for like 10 minutes. Uh, uh, the driving force of it for me was... Uh, I. Agnieszka, so our main character's name, Agnieszka, um, her relationship with Cassia, her best friend, mm. uh, and the way, I think that I just, I kept watching that relationship throughout all the plot things that were going on, because I was, 
I, I was so deeply invested in it, so deeply invested in seeing what was going to happen. Um, bet- not just between the two of them, but just how it was, it was the relationships that, that were really crucial to me. Um, less than the woods end game, actually. Uh, like, I think, and that may be because I sort of, I think I saw where she was going with the wood from about the middle of the book. Um, there's a bit where, there's a bit where she, when when she's talking a little bit, I think like the the dragon, uh, the wizard Sarkhan at one point is talking about um, the the history of the tower in which she lives, uh, and uh, like the the people who were basically there before. I, let, let me let me establish some more world building. Uh, we've got the kingdom of Polnia on one side of the wood, which is where our protagonists are, and the kingdom of Russia on the other side of the wood, with whom Polnia has been at war ever since the queen of Polnia was like abducted into the wood by uh, like a prince of Russia or something. So anyway, the point is that uh, the at some point there's some backstory to like the people who were in the valley before Polnia and Russia kind of set up there and that the wood was there at that time. And as soon as I saw that, like, again, when I say that there's a lot of stuff that this book is doing that I've seen done in, in fantasy novels before, that was sort of pinging my buttons there of, hmm, I think I'm going to see something done here with, like, you know, an, an, a sort of original sin kind of moment uh, where we're going to kind of get some backstory that's going to trace its way back to some original terrible deed that was done that going to need to be addressed or unraveled in order to achieve peace because clearly all of the uh like the, the escalating threat level is not being uh kept pace with essentially and and so something reversey has to happen in order to revo- uh, resolve everything so i think i saw that from about the midpoint of the book and what i was really really invested in were the relationships were figuring out you know what how how is this going to play out between characters uh as opposed to between uh the the sort of narrative forces of the book yeah and i actually think the ability of the i mean this is the great thing about a great book right it can appeal mm. to multiple senses of the reader mm-hmm. like you want to know the answer to the plot you want to know how things are resolved <clears throat> and i you make a a good point there about sort of seeing these um uh I don't know, red flags or markers for like mm-hmm. plot structures you've seen before. And certainly um, when that queen is rescued and brought out of the forest yeah. and, and how she reintegrates into, I mean, basically from the minute she gets out, you know, like, yeah. you know, that some shit's going to go down and it's going to be, and she's going to be right at the middle of it. Right. And, yep. and, and so like in that way, the plot is actually trim. Once you get past the beginning, I think where, mm-hmm the plot could go one direction and it doesn't go that direction because that's not who the dragon is. Mm-hmm. Um, the plot becomes, I think, f- pretty pretty predictable overall. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you pretty much know how it's going to play out. You know who the bad guys are going to be. You know how they're all going to line up. I mean, there's no real twist uh, right. in that uh, at all. And yet, and it's, it's fascinating to me, and I do wonder now if you put yourself, and we've... Subsequently, I mean, there's been so much raving on Twitter. We're subsequently, subsequently mm. starting to get the people who were like, I don't see it. I don't see what yeah. you all are so excited about. <laughs> right. And I, and I, and I get frustrated with that because I'm like, how do you not see how brilliantly executed all of this is? But I think particularly among sort of the, I don't know, I hate this term, but the, 
because it's sort of a, a term used by the rabid puppy crowd, right? But like the <laughs> the literati. Oh um, my god, that term! I swear, it sounds like the Illuminati, <laughs> but with literature. It's, it's great. It's not even deliberate. It's so hilarious. But like the liter- yeah. the literati, like people who read a lot within a particular mm-hmm. genre, I think become like. I think our sense of wonder is like burned out of us because mm-hmm. we've seen something done so many times. And so I think sometimes people can read a book like this and be like, oh, I've seen this a thousand times. And we lose our ability to appreciate something just done so well. Um, oh my God. I totally, okay, so I agree. But at the same time, I probably, I mean, I count myself among people who, uh, who feel kind of jaded and burnt out by things because they read a lot. Um, like, I, I mean, I, oh, I oh, certainly yeah. read a lot. Totally. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm in this weird position where as a consequence of like the, the intersection of grad school and, uh, reviewing for my livelihood that I'm sometimes reading two to three books a day. It's like, it's my, my like my brain's on fire all the time with like the, the reading that I'm doing. But, um, but that's why that's why I treasure a book like this so much because I really feel that it transcends the tropiness completely, completely, completely. Like even as I'm sitting there reading, going, "Oh, I totally see what she's doing here. I totally see what she's doing here." I can't even pause to think that because I'm so thoroughly immersed in the thing that she's doing. Uh, it's just mind blowing. And I mean, I'm, I literally I came to this book from like the most equal and opposite possible book to come to it from, I think. Like, I literally just fe- finished reading um, Hanu Rajaniemi's uh, Collected Fiction. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, 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 so the polar I went opposites. from, like, so, yeah, like, a book of short fiction full of, like, hard SF short fiction um, to, to, like, the most, to, to epic fantasy, essentially, um, or, you know, at least sword and sorcery fantasy. Um, and both of those books utterly blew my mind. I like, I, I, I'm not entirely sure human beings were meant to read two such excellent books in a row because I'm, I've literally been left in a daze by them. I've kind of just been wandering around, not really caring about anything else but these books and talking to people about how incredibly excellent they are. Um, but the thing with Novik's book, like, I'm sort of aware of the fact that so far I might, it, maybe someone could, could construe the things that I'm saying as, diminishing or something because I'm I'm saying that yo know, yeah like I can see what she's doing. Let me say the things that I see that she's doing that I've said before that I've seen before rather. From the, the opening bit. The opening bit is basically straight out of fairy tale. It's Beauty and the Beast. You know, it's uh you know, young woman gets put into the, it's no it's Beauty and the Beast and it's Jane Eyre, right? Um you've you've got this dynamic of uh, a first person narrative from a young woman who's like trying to who's on the cusp of, of adulthood trying to find her way in the world and she's got this implacable force in her life which is this utterly cantankerous horrible borderline abusive person um who she's got to you know figure out a way around and, and all sorts of stuff right that's totally tropey um but i didn't care because it was so good it was incredibly good and it was subversive at all the right beats all the, there are all sorts of beats where <clears throat> that I recognize from uh, from romance fiction and from uh, 19th century fiction and from all sorts of other things that have taken those things uh, and run with them really seriously and earnestly. I totally see all the parts where this novel is like, nope, I'm going to turn away from that. I'm going to turn away from this. I'm going to turn away from that. And I'm going to do something different with this. 
so there's that's one thing. The other thing is um, the magic, right? You've got a magic system in this world that is very divided into high magic and low magic. You've got the the like you know it's basically like orchestra versus folk music. You've got the really mannered, the really symmetrical, geometrical, precise magic of the wizards that is all booklearning and uh, and 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 pronunciation and precision, and then you've got the magic of Yaga uh, that uh, Agnieszka eventually comes to discover, which is all intuitive and about feeling your way through things and about slightly slurring your words. And it's so it's inflected by both gender and it's inflected by class. And I think, OK, I've definitely seen that before as well. I've seen that in Terry Pratchett's uh, uh, Equal Rights, you know, with sky magic and earth magic and the sky magic is for men and the earth magic is for women. But wait, no, here's a girl who does sky magic, you know, um, or there's uh, Robin Hobbs. Um, Assassin's Apprentice series, where you've got the will and the wit, and the will is, you know, the legit sort of uh, telepathy power stuff, and the wit is like this low thing of talking to animals. But you, as it turns out, you need both of those things. That's always kind of the end game of establishing these kinds of magic binaries, is that you need both of the things. You need them to come together because they are more than the sum of their parts. That is also super tropey. Does it feel tropey in Novik's book? No, it doesn't. It feels incredible. It feels absolutely amazing. I'm just like totally swept up in every every success and failure of Agnieszka's. I'm so invested in it. And I'm and I start out totally hating the dragon and then I slightly come to hate him less and then oh my god, I'm doing that thing where I'm doing that thing where I'm really liking an utter asshole in a book, but here it goes, I'm liking him. And it's this is what I mean by it. it's so well done. You could look at it and you could, it's like looking at just this huge spread of beautiful meal and going, yes, I can identify this dish and that dish and that dish, but you know, it's the most delicious that I've ever had this dish. So yeah, I think I'll pause there. That was a long ramble. It was, it was a good ramble though. And I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to attack it in parts. The, the first part okay. that I thought was really you kind of talk about the relationship between the abusive guy and the, and the, and the, and this girl who has to get around him. And it reminded me of maybe like my favorite scene in the whole book, I think, or series of scenes in the whole book is when the, one of the first things he teaches her, cause he, he chooses her, you know, her best friend is actually the girl that he should choose. She's prettier. She's uh, smarter. She's stronger, but braver, she, more accomplished in every way. She's, she's the perfect girl. Uh, but he picks our protagonist because she is a wizard. She has the ability to become a wizard, and he can't turn right. away from her because they're rare. And he, it's the king's law. That's right. He has an obligation to teach her, and so he picks her. And she's a she's a bumbling fool, right? Like she can't keep herself <laughs> clean, and she uh, breaks everything that she touches. And it, it turns out there's a reason for that, as sort of the plot yeah. carries on. But first things he teaches her is how to turn her messy dresses into these huge, opulent ball gowns mm -hmm. that confine her and, and tie her down and make her unwieldy and stiff and all the things that she isn't. And then every yeah. night when she leaves his presence because he requires her to be dressed this way, she tears off this dress and throws it away basically because it's made by magic and it, yeah. she has an unlimited supply of them and puts on her homespun dress like sort of in rebellion. Yeah. Like these are, these scenes are so well done and oh, and they yes. are, and they are so it's like, yeah, I've seen it before, but, and I, and I, and I think to myself, like, why, you know, is, is Novik a great writer? Yeah. She's a great writer. There are lots of great writers. Right. And like, but 
how does she pull this off so mm-hmm. magically? And I, and I and I think you made the point earlier, and it's why it's the characters are are just they're just perfectly executed. Like they really are. The dragon should be somebody that we hate, and yeah. yet we kind of like him. Like you 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 like him almost right away. I mean, there's she shows just enough mm-hmm. beneath the gruff exterior. Right, <laughs> that that you see a kernel of somebody in there that you could like. Um, you know what I think it even is is that it's not a gruff exterior. I think he's legitimately an asshole uh, in the beginning, but like, but in a way that um, how how can I articulate this? When I think of something like um, you know, Mister Rochester or Mister Darcy or uh, 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 who's another one? I don't know. Uh, you know, you're you're a Byronic hero, right? Their sort of whole deal is that they are just so great and they're so misunderstood and only a woman can understand them who is like, I don't know, either their incestuous sister or the woman they can't have because of whatever. You know, there's like that sort of that sort of dynamic. The dynamic here is super different. Uh, the dynamic here is actually that he is, he, he's a vain man who is... Uh, who really, who, who loves to look at beautiful things to the point where he is just incredibly disdainful of anything that is less than perfect. And I think what makes that work is that she recognizes this immediately and that she starts out as well, like that, that her hatred for him at first is utterly legitimate too. Uh, and that when we get, we get to watch her moving from her hatred of the things that he's done, from the fact that he's taken a woman out of the village every 10 years for a century, um, she, uh, that, like, that she has this totally good reason to hate him. But then in his company, she's exposed to like an understanding of him that doesn't at all excuse his behavior. And I, I think that's important because so often the understanding is meant to excuse the behavior the understanding is meant to kind of say ah see now i have acceded to that category of being the woman who understands the ironic hero and thus i am made worthy of him and it's it's so completely not what's happening here um that that in itself was really exciting to me there's just like i think maybe all throughout the excitement comes from you know there's a certain pleasure in seeing a trope just turned on its head but I think there's something even more delightful about seeing a trope hewed really, really, really closely to, um, but subverted in these small, interesting, um, uh, intricate ways uh, that, that just kind of, that, that take the thing that is the trope and that is attractive about the trope and keep it, but keep it in a mindful, thoughtful, self-aware way. Well, almost like she's executing the trope as it was meant to be executed, but, but never yeah. has been before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, it's interesting. It, it, it that continues on all the way to the end. You know, I mean, I think you're right in these <laughs> standard stories. Right. Like she grows to an understanding. We as the reader say, like, oh, of course, knowing what we know now, his behavior is perfectly justified. You know, he was scarred <laughs> by another woman, and then he was had this duty <laughs> that he had to uphold. Right. And like, and all mm-hmm. of those excuses are held up in this book for mm-hmm. him. Right. We learn mm-hmm. all of these reasons why he is the way he is. And yet, right. Agnieszka never, never like says, well, oh, well, that's perfectly understandable why you do what you did. She never absolves him from that. No. In fact, exactly. she, in fact, even as they start to become attracted to one another, 
she continue they keep that arm's length, like recognizing mm-hmm. that there may be no overcoming this gulf between them that is because mm-hmm. of the things that he's done. And, mm-hmm. and even in the end, right? Like when the, the standard ending is happily ever after. And right. the, the ending is happy, but, mm-hmm. but she, he comes to her. It's right? on her terms. Exactly. It's on her terms. Yeah. And, and, and she demands yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And the whole nature of this, the plot about why he is the way he is, is because of his unwillingness. I, I, I love the fact that the man is held account, held accountable for his unwillingness to commit, like not just to the relationship, which is always like trophy and standard, but the reason that he's done all of this stuff to these women over the years is because of his unwillingness to take root within a community. Yes. Like his complete yes. unwillingness to make himself vulnerable is why mm-hmm. he's done all these horrible things. And like, and she indicts him for it. And that's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's also, oh man, talking of like uprootedness and stuff. I, I usually get really irritated when, uh, well, no, that's not true. Not, more irritated when it happens in television and stuff. But when like the title of a thing is said in the thing, I'm like, aha, we have a title, that kind of moment. Right. I loved in this book that literally every time every single time you see the word uprooted it means something different like it it's you look at the title on its own and you think hmm okay uh you know this will probably be thematic in some way it's so versatile and so just it it transforms its meaning from from almost scene to scene you know uh, from the first moment where you think okay a girl has been uprooted from her village right and then after that, you realize, ah, but wait, there's like, there's more than that going on. There's an evil wood and all the thing that that sort of uprootedness brings with it. Um, and then there's like literally turning trees upside down in order to extract people from them. And then there's like another kind of uprooting of taking, you know, Agnieszka to court. And then, um, and then the fact that, oh, I, without getting into like spoiler ending stuff, it just keeps changing. The nature of rootedness and uprootedness keeps changing throughout the book. And I absolutely loved that. I, I just, I totally loved how versatile it was. Yeah, and there's there's a character we haven't talked about really. Well, there's two characters we haven't really talked about at all. So you mentioned in the beginning the steamy sex scene, which mm-hmm. which happens uh, more toward the yeah. end of the book. But there is mm-hmm. like another scene in the beginning, and it, it it seems a little bit more relevant right now as we've been having this humongous mm-hmm. Twitter conversation about Game of Thrones. And oh sex God! And, and sexual <laughs> violence and all that stuff. And like yeah. there is an a, an attempted rape uh, in the book. And yeah. it totally caught me off guard because I didn't hmm. expect it in this book, which I guess okay. after, after this conversation, right, like I totally should have because that is a trope that almost has to be addressed, right? Yeah. Like, almost yeah. had to be addressed because of the, the fact yeah. that all of the things that you would expect in this situation haven't taken place. And so yeah. it almost had to happen. And, and, and it was resolved in such a way that empowered the main character and, and nothing yeah. really horrible happened at all, in fact. But mm-hmm. um, did it catch you off guard or were you kind of expecting it? I mean, it, it kind of caught me off guard. I was expecting it, <laughs> but I don't know if that's just because on some level I'm always expecting it. I'm actually, no, that is totally true. I'm always expecting it. And, um, and then at some point when I'm reading a novel and I become aware of the fact that I've stopped expecting it, I feel this enormous relief um, that uh, like, I, I became aware of this. Like I, I had to articulate this in a review at one point. Uh, I think it was as I was reading *Grace of Kings* by Ken Liu, of course, a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, 
I was thinking a lot about the the female characters in Grace of Kings and kind of, you know, d debating whether or not in the review I was going to go to the obvious uh, analog of, you know, current big epic fantasy or whatever and Game of Thrones and stuff like that. And realized that the starkest difference between Game of Thrones and Grace of Kings was that as much as truly terrible, awful, horrible things happen in Grace of Kings, it doesn't have the atmosphere of constant sexual threat that Game of Thrones has. Like Game of Thrones is just it's it's the the air that everyone breathes. Some like if there's a woman on screen, she's gonna get raped. It's just that's that's the way that it's it's like the, the book's mode of composition is if there is a woman on screen threaten her with sexual violence. Heck, sometimes if there's a man on screen, you know, threaten him with sexual violence, if you really want to establish how horrible a villain is, you know, um, because, like he'll even rape men, uh, that sort of thing. So um, when I became aware that, hey, wait, no, I'm, I'm not actually like just sort of deadening myself inside waiting for a woman to get raped, uh, I always feel kind of really grateful and it's a, it's a shitty thing to have to feel grateful for but it's something that I do uh, so uh, it didn't it didn't take me by surprise I, I basically as soon as I saw the prince writing up actually I was like hmm yeah okay so it's been established that uh it's been established that the dragon isn't a rapey dude so here is another potentially rapey dude in order to kind of you know address this but then I loved the way it was treated I loved the way it was resolved um Anishka's uh, cathartic reaction was was very cathartic to me, also. <laughs> so it was. Uh, uh, I, I just really liked the way it was handled, and the way it was handled subsequently throughout the book was interesting as well. Yeah. So Prince Merrick is is who we're talking about, and strangely, like there were points of the book where I found myself kind of empathizing with him a little bit. I mean, he was actually huh. a really, and I would I would characterize him as the villain of the book, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. Like the wood is the antagonist, but he's like the bad guy. I, but I did find myself empathizing him with him at various points in the book because he had some genuine reasons to be um, um, screwed up, although messed not, up. not yeah, messed, not messed <laughs> up in the way that he attacks her. Obviously, like that's just this, no. this horrible royal privilege that this guy walks around with. But like, right. if I was looking at the book and there was one thing that I really could point the finger at and say I didn't really like was the fact that by the end of the book, he becomes cartoonish in his villainy uh, a little bit. Mm. Like in the beginning of the book, like it was sort of like, oh, he's the bad guy, but like he has good reasons to be the bad guy. Uh, and then as, right. as it went on, I was like, boy, he is really gone off the deep end. And like, I suppose like there's, again, like there's, she, she, mm. she gives reasons, I think, to support that within the story that like he's you know, mm -hmm. not himself. He's being manipulated, but, um, things get pretty black and white, you know, as the, as the battles kind of collide in the end of like, who's doing the right, right. thing and, and who's not. Yes. Yeah. I, I totally agree that that bit was a bit messier, partly because of just how perfect everything else was. When things start to really escalate as they're leaving court, that, that part there was a bit, uh, I, I mean, it, I was still so totally invested and astonished by uh, by various things as they were happening, but it um, it it almost it it felt that was the closest the book came to feeling like it had a set piece in it. Uh, like we're going to have a big battle scene now, basically. Um, so, and I'm still sort of thinking about that and what other work that scene was doing because the everything else about the book like it just feels like there's not a word wasted you know like it feels everything everything what is it a place for everything and 
everything has its face, you know. Um, but that the the battley bits uh, in between the resolution and the and the middle bit, I think those were a bit messier. But um, but I totally agree about Merrick uh, and his villainy. I really liked the way the book didn't make like if he does become cartoonish towards the end, it's not in it's not in the way that. Uh, villains usually become cartoonish, which is usually by means of sexual threat, right? Like, usually when you've got a mustachioed, you know, villain or whatever, it's like, haha, behold how evil I am, for lo, I do rape the women's. Um, and that's kind of like... I should laugh, that's, 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 that's that was funny, not, Amal. <laughs> I know. It's, <laughs> it's alright, you can praise my delivery. Um, but it's it's really, that, that's not the way it works with Merrick. Um, his villainy is getting established in different ways like his cartoonish villain is getting established in different ways his his initial totally uh you know like the the way that the attempted rape is done in the beginning is so just matter of fact you know it's like he he doesn't see it as anything cruel or malicious at all it's just you know it's his privilege, ooh, as you said. That reminds um, me of—I don't mean yeah. to interrupt—but it reminds me of her yeah, reaction, yeah. which is fascinating, and I thought was really interesting. Was Novik said uh-huh. um, the thought that went through our, the protagonist's head was, if he had just asked, I probably would have said yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting um, that that line Absolutely. was included. Like if he had, if he was, he's because <clears throat> it because it sort of it sort of takes the. Um, like the standard fantasy thing is right. Like a woman should save herself and, and sex before marriage or when you're not betrothed is somehow horrible. And like very casually, Novik says, no, like sex is fine. <laughs> you know, like if he had just mm-hmm. asked, like I totally would have been cool with it because he's this good looking guy who seems very charming. Yeah. Um, but he didn't ask. And so exactly. I just thought that was really artfully done because it makes a commentary about the world, right? That, um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. No, no, you're absolutely right. That's that's totally, totally true. Everything about Agnieszka and sex in this book, I really loved. Uh, like, there's just even even before the the, the steamy sex scene uh, of which I am so enamored, for for reasons that I could get into, but I'm not going to because I'm a bit shy. Um, but uh, but it's really all to do with her agency. Um, there's, you know, there's a scene at some point where, like, her magic and Serkin's magic is getting all entangled and in ways that they're unprepared for. Um, and so they start getting really intimate with each other really quickly. And the way that that was happening, too, from her, it's the fact that it's from her perspective, it's from her gaze. And she, like, seeing her hungry for, uh, for, like, the, the experience of, just you know, touching his skin and his body and stuff was—it's so wonderful to see. It's just—it's—it's. It's, I love seeing that. I just love seeing a woman actually having sexual hunger, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, not just because it is also very standard to see uh, women, you know, deploying sexuality in in fantasy novels you know it's it's supposed to be their power only in as much as you know it has power over men or whatever it's really boring um but to see a woman just like really kind of ridden with desire uh for you know for anyone for a dude for a girl you know whatever it's it's just wonderful to me and Agnieszka in particular the way that 
the way that that Novik articulates this for her, um, as you know, as as someone who has no experience of sex as well, you know, the, there's none of the the kind of wilting flower stuff. There's no shyness about it. There's just this curiosity and desire. I loved reading that, and I I just I don't see enough of that um, in books either. The other thing I really want to talk about though is Cassia because oh my god Cassia like oh I just, oh. <laughs> oh I just love her so much I love and I mean okay I became aware at some point during the book Cassia is Agnieszka's best friend um they've been best friends since they were kids and there's this totally fascinating this part of the subversion thing that, that's going on from the very beginning it's the 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 backstory there is that it's totally obvious to everyone in the village that Cassia is going to be chosen because she is very special because she is she has this charisma and this grace and this uh competence and so her whole childhood was people getting ready to let go of her was people getting like kind of not trying to not love her too much because they were going to have to give her up and stuff and god like the fact that it looks like the book is articulating that in order to make Agnieszka's uh Agnieszka's being chosen really startling you know or or really uh to have that be the plot thing right oh everyone thought it was going to be her but no in fact it's her but that's not what the book does at all. Like it, it does do that. It does in fact choose Anyeshka, but it it in, it interrogates what it was like for Cassia to be on the receiving end of that treatment. It interrogates what it was like for Anyeshka to grow up in her friend's shadow. It looks at all of those things, and what it's looking at essentially is female friendship. Oh my God, female friendship! This like manna in the desert that I never see in books, or that. I rarely see in books and I therefore like treasure and, and rail about all over Twitter whenever I see it happen. The huge motivating relationship in this book is the one between Cassia and Agnieszka. Like everything that Agnieszka does is for love of Cassia. It's for love of Cassia and for love of her family and her community. It's not for love of the dragon, right? It's oh, like it's just I'm oh man, you can't see I'm like literally clutching at my hair as I'm talking about this because I'm just so Talking into this book and the things that it does. Anyway, then, you start talking, Justin. I need to recover. <laughs> and then in, at some point, right? So in the beginning of the book, Agnieszka possesses all the all the power to sort of to to protect Cassia and to uh, help her, right? As she mm-hmm. rescues her and becomes her savior and yeah. restores life to her and all of these things. And there's lots of plot in there that I'm not going to talk about, but trust right. me, all that happens. Mm-hmm. And then the power dynamic kind of shifts at some point where Cassia yes. becomes her protector and, yes. and all the way to the end, right? Like she's the one there. And the, one of the coolest things the book does is the magic that Sarkin and Anyeshka have to mingle to do is this truth magic, mm-hmm. this revel, yes. this revelatory magic that reveals that you cannot be in the pre- in its presence and yep. not see the truth in something. And it's the, the scene that you talk about where like we finally see what we see inside Cassie and we see what it was like to be this, this girl who was raised her whole life to be this, this special person that was going to be let go. And then mm-hmm. the disappointment of not being able to, it's sort of like the, the person in the military who trains to go to war and dreads every day they'll have to go to war. But if they never get to go to war, feel very disappointed that they never got to. Right. Cause that's mm-hmm. what their whole life has been about. 
And so her whole yeah. life has been about this sacrifice that she's going to make and she doesn't get to yeah. make it. And who gets to make it? Her best friend who is wholly unprepared for it. And like the jealousy and the yeah. bitterness and all of the things that they feel for one another, but then are overridden by the love that they feel for one another. I mean, it's, it's yeah. special. Like it's a very special, um, bond that she describes that I think you're right. You Absolutely. know, we don't, we don't get to see very often. The only other time I, I really felt that I saw that in a novel was Codename Verity, which, my God, if, if you haven't read it, uh, not you specifically, Justin, have you read it? No, I'm scared to read it. I don't, oh my I, God. I, 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 don't oh. Know, I don't know that I can handle the emotional vulnerability. <laughs> like, Justin! It's sort of like I've never, seen, I've, never, I've never seen Schindler's List because I don't want to cry that hard. You know what I mean? Like, there are certain things okay, that, like, I right. avoid because yeah, no, I, I, I don't want to get too emotional. <laughs> but, okay. But well, in that list. case, well, I mean, if you don't want to get too emotional, you probably shouldn't read it. But you should get emotional to read this book because it's, God, it's so, oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to start tearing up just thinking about it. it I mean, uh, I, I'm just going to tell you and the world uh, that as a 10, um, how completely unprepared I was for Codename Verity. I was told about Codename Verity in the same conversation that a friend was telling me about Isabel Wilson's Flora Segunda books. And as a consequence, I sort of conflated them in my head. And so I was convinced that Codename Verity was uh, about, like, you know, a, a plucky young girl who goes on adventures and there, that there would be um, sequels to it. Right. So even as terrible things were happening in the book, <laughs> truly, truly terrible things. I sort of clung to this, this, this deep-seated trust of, yeah, but there's going to be a sequel, so everything's going to be okay, right? Like everyone, everything's going to be fine. Um, and I was wrong. <laughs> Nothing was fine. Everything was, everything was terrible. Yeah, that's unfair. Except that everything was also perfect. It was perfect. But I basically, I was so unprepared for it that I mean, I stayed up until about four in the morning finishing it. Um, and I was like in bed next to my partner who had long since fallen asleep. And I actually had to get up and leave the room and go into another room and shut the door behind me in order to violently sob and without waking my partner because I like, I seriously, I think I cried for 10 minutes, like ugly crying man. Um, and, and nothing but like photos of Cat Howard's adorable pug could comfort me. And even then, I mean, you know, it could only go so far. But Codename Verity, the whole point is that it's entirely about the best friendship between these two girls and their utter, utter, utter love for each other. Um, they're, and, and the thing with um, Uprooted is that that relationship is there, but it's not, um, it's, it's not articulated or represented in the same way. I mean, Codename Verity, you're getting two first-person narratives uh, that are kind of entwining with each other. Everything in Uprooted is from Agnieszka's perspective. So you get her narration through that truth magic um, of, of what she, she can see that uh, Cassia has been feeling and all that stuff. So the, the emotional resonance of it doesn't function in quite the same way. It's not as devastating. Actually, what was more devastating than that to me was uh, the bit at the end where, uh, without going into spoilers, there's the thing with the sisters in the wood. Right. That's that's like my other huge button to push. Uh, that, that like I I also cried and cried and cried over that. Did I make you? Did you cry at any point during this book, Justin? No. 
No, it it did. Are not, you just saying that? No, it it did not resonate for me in the same way. So, like, let me give you an example. The only film that has ever made me sob uncontrollably is called Rudy, and it's about oh, is that the football film? Yeah. It's about the relationship between, yeah. like, a father and a son and between, like, this guy and his football team. It, those, these are things that are, like, very within my experience, and so they resonate with me on a very deep emotional level. So, like, Uprooted, I love it for a lot of reasons, and I, like, it does resonate emotionally for me, but, like, I just, it doesn't connect for me, I think, the same way, perhaps. Like, sure. I don't have siblings, I don't. You know, like, I, hear, yeah. I don't know, but like, <clears throat> shit, with, I, I, um, shit with kids wrecks me, right? Like, anything about kids, like, because <laughs> I have kids, you know what I mean? So, like, it just resonates yeah, differently. Yeah. I totally hear that. I, I, I am super disproportionately vulnerable to things with sisters in them, because uh, my sister is, like, my best friend and, right. um, and inarticulably deal, dear to me. And, um, I, I think I was talking on Twitter to you about this actually but we should talk a bit about the hype thing maybe um because like we were talking about going, we we're going to have this conversation on twitter um and uh and about how oh my god we both want to marry this book we're going to like fight each other for who gets to marry this book um and you know uh some people were, were sort of demurely chiming in going yeah I didn't, you know i didn't really think it was that great didn't think it lived up to the hype right. and the hype is something that i'm really sort of curious about because I think of a film, like, my, my, my go-to thinking about hype is, uh, thinking about Frozen. And how when I saw Frozen, uh, again, this is me, disproportionately vulnerable to stuff about sisters, never get to see stuff about sisters, uh, that, that kind of reflects my experience in any way. And then here was film that, okay, not exactly because it was really dire. <laughs> but in, in some ways re- reflected aspects of my experience with my own sister. And, it, and it was, gutting to me it was just like to, and like I, I watched it with my sister and, and we were both kind of like crying on each other it was very emotional um and, and you know I glowed about it on the internet about how astounding this film was and everything and I just feel like as a consequence um it did a disservice to a lot of people who went to see it who didn't have the, those vulnerabilities abilities and to inst- and, and who went seeing it maybe you know having heard a bunch of people talking about how brilliantly feminist a film it is and how it's doing all sorts of things that not that like, haven't been done before and went to see it and went meh you know meh, my expectations were raised too high for this to still be impressive to me and I'm kind of you know as a reviewer <laughs> uh, wary of doing this because on the one hand I want to be totally honest about my reaction to a book and on the other, I, I want to be able to kind of imagine a reader who isn't me encountering the book. Um, and I, I sort of want the review to occupy a kind of middle ground between those things where I can understand where my reaction came from and try to kind of disentangle that from from what the book is actually doing, you know, to, to try and, and achieve some, some sense of context that isn't just the context of me. But it's truly, truly difficult for me as I, as I see people re- like, you know, react to the reactions to Uprooted. When, so like we saw to, this with two books last year, right? Like Ancillary Justice right? And, Go- right. and Goblin Emperor, right? So right. both of those books, like I remember I rave about them online, right? These are wonderful right. and like Liz Birkin's raving about them and, and Cameron Hurley's raving about them. Like we're all raving about it. And then invariably you get the people who say, I didn't get it or it didn't work for me. And like mm-hmm. I think that's actually every book is like that. But when, when a book buzzes like that, mm-hmm. those people feel it 
feel that it's more necessary for them to vociferously object to the mm-hmm. hype, right? So like if if I'm at volume 10 on how good a book is, somebody who doesn't like it, who normally might just be like at volume 2 about how they didn't like it, almost mm-hmm. feel compelled to move up to volume 10 about how they didn't like it to sort of balance the scales. I totally see that. But I think what I'm wondering about is whether, in fact, they would have been at that, like, two level with it in the first place. Like, I wonder if when people are reading a book that's being really buzzed about, as you say, if, in fact, it diminishes their ability to react to the book as opposed to the hype. Um, You know, like, if I wonder if that's... And, I mean, it's impossible to really go back. It's not really... I mean, (laughs) it's... I think it's more important to talk about how brilliant a book was than to not talk about how brilliant a book was in the hope that other people will experience the book in an unadulterated fashion. You know, that's ridiculous. Right. Um, but at the same time, I, I do kind of wonder if, if that just kind of comes into it. I mean, I know it affects me. Uh, you know, if I, if I want to go and see a mindless film, like just something that is, you know, action-y and, and whatever, and then someone tells me, oh, no, but it's actually really smart and doing all of these things. And my expectations get raised and I go and nah, it's just kind of a fun, dumb movie. Then I, I might not actually, you know, I'll be a bit disappointed where I might not have been before. This happens with Doctor Who all the time. Oh, man, I try to never listen to what people say about a Doctor Who episode before I watch it, because invariably I I just, yeah, I think, it's just better if I don't. <laughs> I think this is a thing, you know, like, uh, but I think a lot of people that have that response to, to, bu- to books that are sort of like being buzzed about. Number one, I think in a lot of cases wouldn't have read it otherwise, right? They're oh, only, true. They're only yeah. reading about it because it's been buzzed about and like they sort of feel obligated to read it. And anytime you right. read a book out of obligation, you know, like I know as a reviewer, like a paid reviewer, if I get assigned a book that, yeah. I, that I feel obligated to read and don't really want to read it, like mm-hmm. my reviews probably, I mean, I've been surprised before, but generally, you know, I'm yeah. not going to be in love with the book or I'll just write a sort of a, a tepid review of it. So I think that sort of balances it out. And, like, there's no question. Like, we're on the internet, Amal. So hot take cent- – yeah. it's, it's, it's hot take central, right? So if I yeah. – I mean, I've done this yeah. before. Like, I got a great deal of traffic early in my blogging career because I decided to negatively review The Way of Kings, right? Or A Dance with Dragons or, like – Oh, those, right. Are those bad books? No. Like, they're actually quite good. But, like, relative to expectations, I, I you know, they failed to meet you know, the expectation that I had set for them. And so like, I was going to make a bigger deal out of that because I look at me, you know, I'm blogging. (laughs) This is, I think that's just sort of the nature of it. And I don't begrudge anybody that, you know, I, but, but yes, you know, I think, I think anytime a book gets hype, you know, I feel sort of bad for Mm -hmm. the author, right? Like we're, we're building the hype. Right. And now she has to listen to the response to the hype. Yeah. But uh, that's true. Well, so long as people don't tag her into it on Twitter. That's right. That's right. Uh, pro- oh, proper Twitter yes. Twitter policy. If you're if you're bad mouthing somebody, uh, subtweet it and and let let one of their friends yeah. tell them about it. Yeah, seriously, guys, come on. I mean, why? Why? I will never understand. I will never understand. The other day, oh my god, some 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 person on Twitter decided to like take exception to a review I'd written literally a year ago, and and it was a it was a it was a negative review. And he decided to take me to task about this review and tag the author into the conversation. And I was like, dude, what? why? Why would you do that? Like, I wrote the thing a year ago. The author is already totally aware of it. Why do you want to start an argument for, like, 
oh, it was just nonsense. It was just rude nonsense. So anyway. Hashtag Twitter. Uh, Hashtag right. Twitter. So, Hashtag ethics. Yeah, right. Ethics. Well, hey, we did that show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we did that show already. All right. But we have... We have raved about uprooted now for I like an hour like this is this is uh by far and away the longest but it's not enough I know we, still, could, it... we could keep going <sighs> for for another hour probably about how awesome it is but uh it is out now people should go buy it that's all I have to say Amal do you have any closing thoughts about this book if any of you guys listen to that rocket talk episode about feasts uh and had opinions about feasts you'll probably have opinions about stuff in this book too because there is a lot of really mouth-watering food description that I totally appreciated. Um, yes, Sam Sykes not, may not uh, like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really beautiful. It, it was, again, it was not stereotypical feasts. It was actually a really cool take on on feastiness and uh, like food presentation and what makes a good, oh man, all that scene, you know, the scene where she's like missing home and it's like the midwinter feast and she tries to make one for herself and it's just not right. Oh God, it was so good. And you Anyway, um, this book is tremendous. It's wonderful. It's brilliant. Do read it. And man, I really want to keep talking about it. So if anyone wants to like have a conversation with me about it on Twitter, by all means do. I am super up for that. I'm going to be reviewing it. Um, I'm like finishing my review of it, I think, tonight uh, for NPR. So that'll be up before the end of the week, I suspect. And uh, yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Amal. We will have you back to talk about another book in the future. All right. Thanks so much for having me. This has been Rocket Talk.